Well, good morning, guys. My name is Ed Griffin Hagen. I'm one of the one of the pastors here at my church. And uh, this morning, I guess uh, we're the ones that don't have a beach condo, or we don't have a river condo, or a friend with a beach condo, or a friend with a river condo. I'm going to go with we're the ones that really love God. That's what I'm going to go with. Um, <clears throat> anyway, anyway, um, I want to. Uh, we're going to jump back into this, this series on James called Faith Dance. Before we do that, let me pray for us real quick, and then we're going to jump right back into it. <clears throat> Lord, we love you this morning. We, we thank you so much for your grace uh, and your mercy. Lord, we thank you for loving us in the middle of us being unlovable. Lord, I thank you for this group of folks that call my church home. Lord, I trust that you have brought the people here that you wanted here to hear your word this morning. We love you in Jesus' name, Amen. So, like I said, we're gonna we're jumping back into this uh, uh, into this series called Faith Dance in the Book of James. We're walking through the Book of James. Uh, James is the twentieth book in the New Testament. It was written fifteen, ten, fifteen years or so after the crucifixion, crucifixion, resurrection, and the ascension of of Jesus. And it was written by Jesus' brother James. We've got this week, next week. To, uh, to wrap up uh, this James series, and then we're going to uh, be in, and, and Richard kind of gave you the, the, the pre on it, uh, a message series called Made for Mission. We're going to start that on the 10th, <clears throat> and this morning we're going to be in about the middle of chapter 3 of James to about the middle of chapter 4, really verses uh, chapter 3, 13 through about 4, 10, and this is this is kind of a tough passage, not tough in the sense of hard to understand, it's just tough. And I want you all to know, we're, when we walk through a book, we're not going to gloss over the tough stuff. We're going to work uh, through struggles together, because I mean, there are passages I struggle with all the time. And not really, again, not, not in the understanding of it, they're just tough, because they say stuff sometimes that we just kind of don't want to hear. And this, this passage is sort of one of those that says a few things that we may not want to hear. And I tell you all, one of the very best witnesses that we can have to a lost and dying world is unity. And it's unity in the walls of this church. It's unity in this body of people that call my church home. But it's also unity, <clears throat> it's unity among the churches. It is it is. Uh, one church working together with another church with the kingdom in mind, not just this church or that church, but with the kingdom in mind. And, and honestly, that's one of my huge passions is to see churches across our city, across our state, across the world that are working together with the kingdom in mind. And I'm just so thankful that there is a togetherness in our little body of believers that is, it's just so cool and it's so real and it is very authentic. But at the same time, this passage in, in James, this text that we're going to walk through this morning, it put me on my knees because all week long it put me on my knees because the reality as we walk over the coming days and over the coming weeks and over the coming months, there's no doubt in my mind that the adversary 
is going to, he's not just going to sit idly by and do nothing. He would like nothing more than to deter us from the mission, to, to detract us, and ultimately to divide us because we are in a battle. Every day there is a battle, and it is a battle to care for kids that are being neglected. It is, it is a battle to feed the people that are hungry. At the end of the day, it is a battle to, to take the gospel, to take Jesus to a world that has never even heard his name. And that battle, often it has taken place in our mind, and I am convinced that the deceiver would like nothing more than to disengage us from that battle. He would like nothing more than to just throw something in front of us to just defer us a little bit. He's not coming at us with a pitchfork and a red cape. He's coming at us with something that looks kind of good, and it just gets us a little, you just got to get us a little bit off track. And he would like nothing more than to do that, and he would like nothing more to do that inside a body of believers. Nothing more than to just take our energy, take our resources, do anything he can do to just get us off track a little bit. And so along with James this morning, I want to encourage us to keep our guards up all the time to keep our guards up, to, to, to keep our guards up against the kinds of things that he would do. And, the, and James is written to believers. The book of James is written to believers. There's a one little section that maybe was not, but it is. So this battle that we're talking about, this, this, the, these, this division is not division between believers and unbelievers. James is talking about division within the body of Christ. And that's what we have to keep our guards up against. So let's, let's look first. Let's look. I want to read us through uh, James 3.13 through 4.10. And then we're going to kind of pick apart the passage. So starting in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done, in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness." What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't, and he's talking to believers when he says that. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You don't have because you don't ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. 
Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. Y'all pray with me for a second. Lord, we pray this morning that, that You would guard us, that you would, <clears throat> that you would guard us against absolutely anything that the adversary would try to attack us with. Anything at all uh, that He would use to get us off track, to get us away from what glorifies You. We pray that You guard our lives. You would guard our, uh, guard our marriages. Lord, that You would guard our families. Guard uh, this church and the folks that call this church home. God, that You would keep us from friendship with the world and draw us deeper and deeper and deeper in relationship with You in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we got this passage, <clears throat> starting in James 3.13. It's two pictures of wisdom and it's two pictures of friendship. I want us to look at two pictures of, friend, of wisdom, two pictures of friendship, and I want us to, to look at these pictures of wisdom first. The first image that James gives us is worldly wisdom. He's comparing. And again, I told you all a couple weeks ago, I want us to learn a lot about the text, a lot about the Bible, because if we can learn a lot about the way the Bible was written and the things that the writers say, our, our relationship with Jesus is just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And so there's contrast and comparison throughout the writings. And in James here, he's going to contrast this worldly wisdom, this picture of worldly wisdom with godly wisdom. And so it starts in verse 14, and he says, But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And did you catch that? And you've got some fill-in-the-blanks in that in your worship guide. In this first one, it's coming straight out of, out of uh, verse 15, and that is that there is a wisdom that comes from hell. There's a wisdom that comes directly from the devil, and it's common in the world. And the danger is, don't miss this, the danger is that we think we're all smart and we're all wise and we, we just all got it going on and we know everything when the reality is when we have this way of thinking, it's coming straight from the devil. And it is because the world's wisdom, it's another fill in the blank, the world's wisdom is motivated, it's not godly motivated, the world's wisdom is motivated by self-centered ambition. Verse 16 we just looked at 14 and 15. And verse 16 says, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and evil practice. And the wisdom of the world measures everything by the way that it affects you. It's, it's in me. It's what's in it for me. What's best for me. The way, everything about the world is screaming about me, me, me. And it's what, what can I do to prop myself up? What can I do to promote myself? And that is the core of the conflict typically in any sort of relationship. In marriage, thinking what's best for me. In relationships with our friends and with our family, what's best for me? It's all about what's in it for me, what's in it for me. On this side, it's all about me, me, me. And then all the way over here, the gospel says the total opposite. The gospel says deny yourself. The world is screaming about me, 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 what's in it for me, and the gospel sends the in, entirely the opposite message and says, deny yourself. So worldly wisdom, that kind of thinking, it's motivated by selfish ambition 
and it results in disorder and evil. Worldly wisdom results in disorder and evil. It results in marriages and homes that are stained by chaos and evil. It results in churches all over the world that are stained by, by chaos and by evil. It, it, it really it produces this worldly wisdom. It produces anger and bitterness and, and strife and conflict and disorder and chaos and, and divorce. And it comes from the world. And James says, but there's another way. He says, but, but there is another way. And that other way is godly wisdom that comes from heaven. You have this wisdom that comes from the world in con- James's contrast in that with godly wisdom that comes from heaven. And, and there's a wisdom that it doesn't come from, and, and the world tells you that it does, but it doesn't come from head knowledge and book learning and, and being a know-it-all. This, this godly wisdom comes from being on your face every day before a holy God. And it is a it is a radically different way of thinking that we can't manufacture. Proverbs, one of the wisdom books in the Bible, Proverbs mentions wisdom over a hundred times. And I want to I want us to look at chapter two of Proverbs, verses one through eight. And this is in your worship guide. And when it's on the screen, it's going to have uh, some of the, some phrases are underlined. And I want you all to grab the pen in front of you and circle. I don't think it's, it's underlined in your worship guide. Circle these things. And, and I want you to see that there's a, th- this passage in Proverbs is like a if da-da-da-da-da-da-da, then da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It's if we, then God. And so I want you all to circle these things. I'm going to read it through at one time, and then I'm a, I want to highlight these things, these little these little phrases that are used. And so it starts off my son because this is Proverbs is giving advice on how to live the same, very much the same way that James is such a practical book. And so he says, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as, as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. So if, this is, begins, this passage begins with if, if you receive my word, if you treasure up my commandments, if you make your ear attentive, you incline your heart to understanding, you seek it, you search for it, you do all of that, that's, that's what we do. That's what man does. At least that's what we ought to do. Then, then in verse 5, you'll understand the fear of the Lord. You'll have knowledge of God. He will give us wisdom. He stores up sound Wisdom. He's a shield. He guards our paths and he watches over the way of the saints. So you, James is telling us and this proverb is telling us to get on our knees and cry out for wisdom, to call out for understanding, look for it like the treasure that it is. And James tells us that God will give it to us. 
You know, God does not call the qualified. God qualifies the called. That's a radically different way of looking at it. And I'm fixing to tell you all something, and this happens to me every Saturday night. The, 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 the deceiver is in my ear, and he says, you don't need to say that. You don't need to say it. He does it every single time I preach. And, and I say, but it's the truth. And he says, yeah, but you don't need to say it because it's going to make people mad or they're going to think you're stupid or something. And, and I just kind of push him away, and I say, but it's the truth. And so I'm going to tell you something. You probably, I don't know, you may say, yeah, it's very true. Um, but he, here it goes. I want you all to know that I don't know what I'm doing. And that is not a big leadership principle. Like, like leaders are going to say, um, when you lead people, just make sure that you let them know that you're clueless. But here's the deal. I'm so honored to lead this church. But every Sunday I'm going to limp up onto the stage because I'm going to lead with a limp because it's just true. It is true of all of us. We're broken, sinful, fallen people that are stained by something that happened thousands and thousands of years ago in the garden. So I will be leading and crazy honored to be doing that, but I will be leading this church with a limp. And it, this was Tuesday night. I'm, I'm in the scriptures and I'm reading 1 Kings chapter 3. Um, 1 Kings chapter 3 is when King Solomon became the king. David, his father, had just died and King Solomon is, is becoming the king. And chapter 3 of 1 Kings is, is, is Solomon's prayer for wisdom is what your Bible probably has as the heading. And so David had just, had just died. Solomon is becoming the king. And God says to him, it's one of the few times in Scripture, God says, just ask me for whatever you want to ask me for. And so Solomon says, he says two things that, that were just so appropriate Tuesday night when I was reading this. He says, but I am only a child. Now, he's literally not chronologically age-wise a child. As being the leader, the king of Israel, he felt like a child. And then he says something else. And this is why you kind of got to learn the languages a little bit. But, but he says, I know neither how to come in nor to go out. I know neither how to come in nor go out. And, and in that language, in that day 3,000 years ago, that is like us saying in today's world, I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. That is what Solomon, who at the end of it all is, is known as the wisest human that has ever lived, and that's what he says to God. And God says, you ask me for whatever you want to ask me for, and here's what Solomon asked for. He asked for discernment in leading. He asked for wisdom. He's on his knees asking God for wisdom in what is good and right and what's wrong to be able to discern that so that he can lead those people. And, I, and when I read that Tuesday night, I thought that that is exactly the way that I feel. And it is about getting on your knees and crying out to God for wisdom. And this is the image of when a husband and a wife or when, when friends, when a church, when we come before God and we say, we need only what you can give. And it's not motivated by self-centered ambition anymore. It is now it's motivated by God-centered humility. 
That's a radical difference. Now it is motivated by God-centered humility. The deeds that are done and the humility that comes from wisdom. Don't miss this. Wisdom from God produces humility in man. Wisdom from the world produces pride in man. Anything that the world is screaming at us is typically the total opposite of what God is screaming at us. God-centered humility, God-centered the wisdom that comes from heaven results in humility versus the wisdom that comes from the world results in pride. So all of us need to humble ourselves and admit and confess that we can't do it alone. That, that, that whatever it is in your life, whatever it is in my life, I can't do it by myself. And you can't do it by yourself. We need what only He can give, and that's God-centered humility. So the kind of, the kind of wisdom that is described here, and if we had more time, we would really pick these, these two passages apart, but it's James 3.17, and it is comparing that to Matthew 5, 2 through 11. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are, it's the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's the biggest block of instruction that Jesus, it's the biggest sermon in the Bible. And it's Jesus' words for three chapters in the book of Matthew. And it is about godly living. It's about how to live a Christian life. And this passage, really the whole book of James, is about the same thing. And they're brothers. James and Jesus are brothers. So I want to just sort of quickly compare what James says in verse 17 um, and what Jesus said in chapter 5. And so James says, wisdom from heaven is first of all pure. And Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will seek, for they will see God. James says, then he says, peace-loving. And Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. James says, considerate and gentle. And Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And James says, submissive. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. James says, full of mercy. And Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And, and, and James in 3.17 says, good fruit and impartial and sincere. And Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled so the, 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 it's, the, it's James and Jesus telling us the exact same thing. And the picture here is wisdom that comes from the blessings of God. And it doesn't re- result in disorder and evil. And if you've ever been around people like that, who have this kind of wisdom, the result is peace and righteousness. And it's what God wants for our relationship with Him it's what God wants for our relationship with others. And it's not peace at the expense of truth. It's not. It's not peace at the expense of truth because, because it's pure and it's true. It's not ex- uh, peace at the expense of, uh, of conviction. Like, let's just all get along and just throw truth out in the parking lot. No, it's pure, but then the purity of God, the the wisdom of God produces peace in what is right and what is good among his people. And only God can give that when we are confessing 
together our need for his wisdom. I hope that makes sense. And so this morning, we all need to ask God to deliver us from the wisdom of the world, to keep our guards up, to help us and, and be a shield for us, and ask him really just for the wisdom that can only come from him. So it's two pictures of wisdom that affect the way that we live. So let's look at at chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 4. And there's obviously a break between chapter 3 and chapter 4, but that God did not put that break in there. God and James did not write the chapter numbers and the verses. Man did that years and years later. So this thought is one thought from about the middle of chapter 3 to the middle of chapter chapter 4. And I think what James is beginning to, to talk about when he says fights and quarrels among the people of God. And again, it's fights and quarrels among the people of God. It's fights and quarrels among believers. It illustrates what happens when we live according to the wisdom of the world. It's the disorder and it's the strife and it's the evil and it's the outcome of what is summarized in verse 4, which we'll get to in just a second. And verse 4 says, Anyone who chooses to be a friend with the world becomes an enemy of God. This is an image of friendship. It's an image of intimacy. And there is a, there's a friendship with the world and an intimacy with the world. And there's an in- intimacy with God. And James says, you've got to be intimate with one or the other. You've got to either be a friend of God or you've got to be a friend with the world. And you can't ride the fence on this. It's either it's one or the other. And so what is this friendship with the world? What does that really mean? And verse 1 says that it comes from, it originates from, it is founded in the sinful desires of the flesh. It says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? And we want, you and I, we want all of us in our flesh and we all have that flesh, we want selfish gain, we want earthly pleasures, we want to please ourselves. And when you get a group of people together that have that in us, there can be problems that result in verses 1 and 2 say, talks about fights and quarrels and envy and you kill and you covet. Now, and I told you all, this was a tough passage and I'm not trying to depress you, but this is what the text says and we got to work through it. And so he's talking about killing and coveting. But obviously it's figurative. As we sit here, it's figurative language because we're not running around killing each other. But that anger, and Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, that that anger may as well be murder. And this is, it's serious stuff. It is this battle that is going on within us when it comes out and manifests itself in relationships. It's a serious thing and we all have that in us and it affects our marriages and it affects our relationships with our parents and with our children and, and just with our with our friends. It affects our relationships with each other and at the end of the day it affects our relationship with God. So friendship with the world comes from the sinful desires of the flesh that's motivated by a hunger for earthly pleasure. And then in verse 2, James says, you're not going to God. He says, you do not have because you do not ask God. Or if you go to God, you're asking for more stuff in the world. 
you know, and, and it, is a, it is a blistering indictment of the prosperity gospel that you see all over the TV. It is a blistering indictment of if you tithe, if you give, if you're generous, then you're going to wake up tomorrow morning and there's going to be a Mercedes in your, in your driveway. Brother, that ain't the way it works. That is not what this scripture says. It, and so it is, a, it is a blistering indictment of this health and wealth. You know, when God says, ask me for anything, he is not telling you to ask him to make you, uh, to, to make you check your bank account online and it's going to have two or three more zeros. That is not what the text says, and that is not what James is saying. That is, is not godly wisdom. It's worldly wisdom that, that seeks earthly pleasure and friendship with the world and intimacy with the world. And so this, uh, look at verse 4. And, and the, the, this stinging indictment comes in verse 4. Because every time the, in the book of James, throughout this letter, he says, he calls the readers brother. Brothers, brother, brother, brother. And so he's talking to believers. In verse 4, he says, um, you adulterous people. And he brings this imagery from the Old Testament that when we pursue our pleasures in the stuff of the world and more things and better and bigger houses and cars and clothes and, and in sexual immorality or impurity or whatever, whatever it may be, we are running around on the God of the universe. We're cheating on the God of the universe. And the emotions that James uses, the language that he uses, it's associated with adultery and marriage. And we are an adulterous people when we abandon God for the things of the world. And look, I don't want to cheat on God even more than I don't want to cheat in my marriage. And it's like this is the picture that James gives us. We are the bride and we belong to a husband. We have intimacy with him. We don't need the things of the world and the stuff that the world gives us. And I just think, Lord, help me to see with those kinds of eyes. And this is what I love so much about verse 5. Verse 5, James says, Or do you think... Scripture says without reason that he, God, jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us. Now think about that context. An adulterous people who are running around with the world seeking pleasure from the world. And James says, don't you know that, that, that God jealously longs for that that he put inside of you? It is the picture that that God has used for his, his affection for his people forever. The Old Testament, Exodus 34, says God is a jealous God. And that's, a, that's language I've struggled with forever. Like, what does that even mean? And it means that as a husband, I am jealous for the affections of my wife. I am jealous for her love. Anyone or anything that attempts to steal Susan's love and affection from me is going to be met with big-time opposition. I hope that makes sense. And in the same way, really probably in a much greater way, the God of the universe, think the God of the universe is so jealous for and he's so desiring of your affection 
and your love that anything that threatens to steal that is going to be met with divine force. And don't miss this. This is not some mealy mouth, insecure sort of jealousy that's somehow God is afraid that we're going to find something out in the world that is better than what He has to offer. It's an infinitely good jealousy because He knows and He wants us to know that everything that is in Him is better than everything that the world has all wrapped up together and given to you. He He so desires your good and He He so desires your satisfaction that He calls us sometimes and gives us tough commands and commands to abandon possessions and things and pursuits in the world because He knows and He wants us to know that there's infinite pleasure to be found in Him, not in the world, in Him. So He calls us to forsake friendship with the world and James just like he did with the wisdom thing, he says, yep, there is another, there's another way. There's another way. And so what about pursuing this friendship with God? It does not come like the friendship with the world came from the sinful desires of the flesh. Friendship with God comes from the gracious desire of God. Verse 6 comes from the gracious desire of God. Verse 6 says he gives us more grace. This is like one of my most favorite verses in the Scripture. Those five words, He gives us more grace. I love that phrase. As if the grace that He has given us already isn't enough. He gives us more. And you wake up tomorrow, guess what you get? You get more grace. Guess what happens next week? You get more. Next month, you get more. You get more. Every second of the week, you get more and more and more and more. And He doesn't stop. He doesn't stop. He just gives us more grace. He gives grace, and we don't deserve one bit of it. And James tells us he doesn't just give us grace, he gives us more grace. And he gives this grace to the humble. God let us get our arms around that. That the God, think about this, the God of the universe. If you walked outside last night, or the night before, or the night before, and you, if you've ever been out in, in the wilderness somewhere where there's not ambient light, and you look up at the sky, and you just see gajillions of stars. He, the God that hung and named every one of those stars, the God that moves mountains, the God that, that oceans obey, that's the God that is jealous for your affections. That is the craziest thing imaginable. Not the person beside you, you know, you know, you know not, not behind you, not in front of you. You think about, you think about, he is jealous for your affections right where you're sitting. He is jealous for, for your love and he is committed to pouring out his grace on you as you humble yourself before him. Help me understand why would we not embrace that intimacy with God? Why would anyone say no to that? I, ju- I can't get my arms around it. L- look up. Look, there's, there's a higher plane in the world. There's a higher plane to live on, and there's another way to live that is not about the earthly pleasure. It's, it's not motivated by self-gain. It is motivated by a longing for eternal satisfaction. It's, a lo- it's motivated by a longing for, e- 
for eternity, and, and it, it results in a submission to the authority of God. And I know that's where we struggle. I know that's where I struggle, in that, in that submission to the authority of God. And I know as we walk through tough passages, and this is for sure a tough passage and a text that, that challenges us. It challenges the way that we live. It challenges the way that we think. It challenges the way that we spend. It challenges the way that we, we, we are generous or we're not generous. Or we, uh, it, it, I know that there's just a temptation to walk out of here today and be almost discouraged, to be like, I don't even know what to do. I don't even know where to begin because there's, there's just so much. And I want to encourage you, not, not if, I want to encourage you, and I'm really encouraging myself, when, whenever we begin to feel that way, whenever we hear a command from God probably at all, start with submission. Start with just saying, I trust you, God. And I don't trust you because somebody told me to trust you. I trust you because you're trustworthy. I trust your promises because you're a promise keeper. You know, we trusted our parents when we were little. We trusted our parents because they were trustworthy. We trusted our parents because they kept promises that they made to us. So we trust God because He is trustworthy. You know, if you want to grow in intimacy with Him, there's nine commands. And I'm not going to go through the nine commands. I'm going to go through this overarching principle but there's nine commands that James gives us to follow that if you want to grow in intimacy with God, number one, and this is the overarching sort of principle, and it's going to be a fill-in-the-blank in your worship guide, it is stop resisting God and start resisting the devil. Stop resisting God and start resisting the devil, especially when we hear stuff and commands that run contrary to the very grain of our lives and the culture that we live in, when we do that, we, we resist God and we embrace the devil. Don't do it. This is verse 7. When we're tempted to go to that site on the internet, when, we, re, when we're tempt, we resist God and we embrace the devil, don't do it. Don't do it. Resist the devil. And James tells us that he will flee. When you're tempted to look, when you're tempted to speak, when you're tempted to act, when you're tempted to spend, when you're tempted to get angry, whatever it may be, when you're tempted to worry, whatever it is in your life, resist the devil and he will flee. Resist him forcefully and seek God with passion. Lord, let us lock on to, to verse 8. James 4, 8. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Resist the devil and come near to him. Pursue purity, James tells us. He says, wash your hands in verse 8. He says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And this is external and it's internal. And it's wash your hands and it's wash your lives and it's wash your thoughts and your hearts and your mind and your desires inside and out. Be pure, pursue purity and be clean. And then in verse 9, and this is one of the toughest verses. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Treat sin seriously. James 4.9 says, Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. We have totally lost, I'm going to call it the holy art of grieving 
and wailing and mourning over sin. To be so overwhelmed with, with how we have just, just latched on to the things of the world and committed spiritual adultery on God. When was the last time that you, when was the last time that I grieved over sin? When is the last time that I grieved over friendship with the world? And we think it's no big deal. And James says, no, it is a huge deal. We need to treat sin seriously. Now, some of you, you're probably sitting out there and you're saying, how in the world do you live like that? You can't live like that. You know, where's the self, uh, self-confidence? self Where's the self-esteem in all that? And here's the beauty of what James says at the end of this passage. It's the beauty in verse 10 of chapter 4. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. It doesn't say, humble yourselves before the Lord and you will lift yourself up. It says, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. And so when you humble yourselves before God and you're grieving and, and, and weeping over sin, then we, you don't have to lift yourself up. You don't. He, he does it for us. He will lift us up. He will make us who we are created to be. You don't have to assert yourself. Humble yourselves and he will lift you up. Resist the devil forcefully. Seek God passionately. Pursue purity. Treat sin seriously. And, and, and the big overarching principle is to trust God completely and he will give us grace. And not just grace, he will give us more grace and, and He will raise us up. And He promises us grace. Not for the good folks. He doesn't promise grace for the good folks because none of us are good. He promises grace for those that humble themselves, ourselves before Him. And whatever you came in here with this morning, it doesn't matter. He is bigger than that. And His grace is bigger than that. It makes no difference. He wants to trade your junk for His blood. 2,000 years ago, that exchange was made on that cross. And I asked this question a little while ago, why in the world would anybody say no to that grace? Why would anybody say no to, to, to that offer of intimacy with God? And so here's the deal. If you have never said yes to that, it's just two things. It's just two things. You, you repent. Because that's, you, you take that sin seriously. You repent and you believe. And so what are you doing in those two things? You're repenting of that sin that is serious and you are believing that what happened on that cross 2,000 years ago was real. He died on that cross and that paid the penalty for the seriousness of that sin and then he, he was dead. They poked a spear in his rib. He was dead. And then three days later, he was alive and he took care of all of that. And so here's the deal. If you have never said yes to that, it's simple. And I'm not going to say that it's easy because it's not easy. And I remember the day I got saved. I remember the second that I got saved. And I wanted somebody or needed somebody to walk that path with me. And so if today you did say yes to that, if you said I can't, I can't do it by myself. I want to be on my face, and I want to say yes. There is a connection card in front of you, and I want you to, to write that that happened down. Not, not, not for some crazy reason, but 
Because I remember the day I got saved and I wanted and I needed somebody to walk that journey with me and to pray with me. And I didn't even know, really understand what happened. But I know that I needed somebody with me. And so we want to pray as a church family and as a church staff. We want to pray with you and for you. And so if that happened, I want you to write that down so that we can do that. Um, So y'all pray with me real quick. Lord, we love you today. We thank you for those five words that, that you tell us or that you told us through James that you give us more grace, that you, it's not just a little bit of grace, that you give us more grace. We did absolutely nothing to deserve it, and yet you give it to us anyway, Lord. More grace and more grace and more grace. And, Lord, we love you and we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Ed. Mm-hmm.